welcome to the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. I'm Molly McCrory and today we're bringing you extended cuts of the science festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of International Pint of Science. Today we're joined by Vanessa Teckentrup, a postdoctoral researcher at Trinity College. Vanessa studies neurobiological causes and treatments for psychiatric disorders. This episode was recorded over Zoom, so there may be some audio issues. We tried to fix them as much as possible, but some mishaps were unavoidable. Grab a pint, it's starting. Hi, Vanessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's really great being here. Okay, so just to start off, your Pint of Science talk was focused on your PhD research which involved the vagus nerve. As I understand it, this controls the parts of the body we don't have to consciously think about. Is that right? Exactly. The vagus nerve is really, really interesting um, because it is one of the cranial nerves and it is often referred to as the wandering nerve. It is so long, so big, it innervates a lot of different internal organs. And it is part of the autonomic uh, nervous system. So that controls processes that we don't really have to consciously think about. So when you think, for example, about moving your arm, that is definitely something that you can easily consciously control. Um, But you'll probably have a pretty hard time trying to control the rhythm of your stomach, for example. Um, And that's a typical thing that's part of the autonomic nervous system that the vagus nerve is also a part of. Could you tell us about how our brain, nerves and body interact when we're not feeling well, especially in terms of mental health and not just physical health? I'll probably start off with the physical health part still, because um, that is quite easy to, to understand. The vagus nerve especially plays a very interesting role in that, because this nerve connects to a lot of different receptors and it collects a lot of information about the periphery. So, for example, if you have any sort of inflammation in your body, which typically happens when you get physically sick, um, the vagus nerve transports this information to the brain. And for that, like we always have to think about like the brain is basically sitting in the bony skull. The information on, on inflammation, for example, is also traveling via the vagus nerve to the brain. Um, and in the end, what we feel as being sick, that is something that's generated by our brain. And that comes back to these inflammatory information that come up via the vagus nerve and that the brain then reacts to initiating this so-called sickness behaviors. At the same time, the vagus nerve is very well known for keeping a balance. There is like a very clever automated switch and it basically leads to anti-inflammatory agents being released to keep this inflammation at bay. And when we now go from any physical disorders to mental disorders, um, a typical thing that we see there is that you also feel unwell in a way. And it's the same thing in a way there. The feelings, the way we feel, if you feel well, feel happy, feel sad, or if we feel unwell is generated by our brains in the end and dependent on the state of our like whole organism gets all this info from the periphery. How is our body state? 
Um, are we good? And if something goes wrong in this interpretation, that can lead to us feeling unwell, even though objectively everything is technically all right. Like we don't lack energy. We have all the food that we need. Um, we got enough water input, for example, um, but we still get the signal that something is not right. And that is pretty much coming down to the interpretation that our brain makes of all of this sensory input. And the vagus is a very integral part of that. So really the whole physical, mental health, there's so much overlap is what it sounds like. Totally. Um, but if you just think about this idiom of gut feelings, which is kind of interesting to say because <laughs> what info is in your gut to drive any sort of, of decision. But it might actually be a pretty smart thing given that we collect so much information from there. And we seem to associate feelings with certain body parts. Like we associate love with the heart and we can associate being in love or also being anxious with our gut. Like sometimes you have these butterflies in your stomach when you think you fell in love. Or when you're very anxious, you can have this weird feeling in your gut where it's like, mm, I don't know what is going on, but something's not, not right. So we feel these things connected to our organs, which is pretty interesting and shows that there is a very big overlap between our physiological reactions and what our brain makes of that on like the affective level in the end. That's, that's really cool. So your research, your PhD research, looked at stimulating the vagus nerve. How exactly does that work? It is actually a pretty old technique and we have two main branches there. So there's um, one branch that is going into invasive stimulation. So you can do surgery um, and implant a stimulator directly to um, the vagus nerve. So basically just emits um, an electrical signal that changes the information that travels via the vagus nerve from the body up to the brain. Of course, that has a lot of risks. Um, so you restrict that typically to um, people that absolutely need this sort of simulation. For example, in um, patients with epilepsy, this has been used a lot, but then you evaluate always like, is the risks, is the risk that is associated with the surgery um, lower than the risk of leaving this disorder untreated. Um, then when you look into history, there are some very interesting reports, um, even in, in ancient history already, um, it has been used as a sort of treatment approach in ancient history. And the idea is that it maybe is coming back to some sort of vagus nerve stimulation because you have a branch of the vagus nerve that runs um, through your neck. What we did is we targeted a different branch of the vagus nerve because it also runs very close to your ear. So we had something that you, it looks pretty much like um, your normal like headphones, like your AirPods um, that you can plug into your ear. The only thing is we have two titanium electrodes on those headphones. <laughs> Um, that go into your ear and uh, because 
basically your skin is quite thin at that point and then you can reach the vagus nerve through that very thin skin. So we also apply electrical stimulation at that point. You can just wear this like a normal headphone sort of connected to a stimulator unit. Um, and then we have the benefit that we don't need any sort of surgery. It's very easy to, to apply. It's also a pretty safe stimulation type. So it has already been approved for um, at home um, application even. So people can just take the stimulator with them um, and use it for a few hours. And it has been used, for example, before for so-called treatment-resistant depression. So basically nothing of the typical approaches that you would go for, like medication or psychotherapy, have worked. Then you can use this so-called transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation too. I, I guess you talked a bit about how it would be used in treatment, but... How does that work? What kinds of things does specifically stimulating the vagus nerve treat? That is an extremely fascinating question because the general answer is we don't know yet. We don't really have a perfect model of what happens when we stimulate the vagus nerve. So even part of my PhD research um, was going into that. Like We first wanted to know um, how extensive is this network that we can reach, especially with this uh, non-invasive stimulation? Um, so what I, for example, did is basically look at brains while they were working and had a look at the activity of different brain parts. It also looked pretty interesting and funny for our participants when we put them through that study because they had a lot of cables running everywhere. Um, and what we wanted to know in that study specifically was, um, can we first see um, a difference in brain activation when we do this non-invasive stimulation? Um, and that's also what we saw in the end in this study, um, that the activity in the entry part where our vagus nerve should end up in the brainstem, it's a very small nucleus, differed when we applied the actual vagus nerve stimulation. We compared that to a so-called sham stimulation. So the experience is pretty much the same for the participants. They feel this sort of little tingling, tickling sensation at the ear, but we don't access the vagus nerve anymore with this sort of stimulation. And that's, that's an important thing that you always need to have in these um, type of stimulation studies. Um, so you don't just compare an actual stimulation against absolutely no stimulation at all, where there's also like the sensory component missing. Yeah, there's got to be something in between zero and a hundred, I guess. Um, so to shift more to your postdoctoral work, could you tell us a bit about what problems that you see with the way that society currently diagnoses and treats mental health conditions? Um, sure. Um, so I switched topics in a way between PhD and, and postdoc, but actually they are in a way connected. It's not easy to see it directly. Um, but what I'm, I was 
even before really interested in was yeah, the way we handle diagnosis of um, mental health disorders. So when we look at that, um, we have a book that contains all of the rules basically for diagnosing people. So whenever you have to give a diagnosis, you also, of course, have to tell what sort of symptoms you've seen, right? So the book is called the DSM. And there was a very interesting paper that looked into the different combinations of symptoms that you can that you can have and that qualify you sort of for certain different disorders. And they've shown through this calculation that there are actually 270 million combinations of symptoms that all would meet the criteria for both major depressive disorder and PTSD. So that is a very big number. Um, And that also shows you like how diverse these disorders can be. Like we always have this impression that, oh, depression, that is one thing. And most of the people who suffer from depression probably are very similar in a way. Not the same people, but their depression is probably similar. And that's absolutely not the case. So, so different. Um, Also, all of these disorders often overlap. It's really hard to even find who is more depressed and who has more of an anxiety because these two really, really overlap a lot in a lot of people in the end. Some people suffer, for example, from gastrointestinal problems. Others don't have that at all. Some people sleep a lot when they are depressed others stop sleeping so it's it's super heterogeneous and we still have this impression that all of these um, disorders that we describe are one homogeneous symptom cluster which probably is is really not the case so that's something that we need to look into because it also makes it way way harder for us to then refer people to the correct therapy for them it's also something that we see that a lot of the patients that we that we have have to try three, four, five different um, therapy approaches be- before they find something that helps them. And if we look at certain of uh, like certain sorts of therapies, for example, medication. When you look at medication for depression, that takes about twelve weeks before you know if that medication will help someone. So you have to wait 12 weeks to see if that will help. And then you go on to the next treatment. You wait again for weeks before you see, oh, that also doesn't help. So we lose a lot of time. And it is, of course, really stressful for for the patients who just want to get the help for them to feel better. Yeah, and I know with uh, medication especially, you kind of have to, once you're on it, then you have to, taper off before and then start another so it's like three months and then more time and then three more months and then more time yeah exactly you lose a lot of time during which the people keep on feeling unwell so where do you foresee any improvement in that coming from i think what we need to look into is how these disorders progress individually so what we currently have um, in in this area of research is a lot of so-called cross-sectional studies so you even have nice studies that have a lot of people in there 
you basically measure them at one time point. You ask them, how do you feel now? You ask a lot of different um, variables from them and then you analyze that. And that tells you something about the average in that group of people. What it doesn't tell us is your personal situation, your individual progression. Because we know all of these disorders play out very individually in every person. Um, what we need to do is follow people through time. Ask individuals again and again and again. Different variables it can be about their sleep, can be about, for example, cognitive variables. So what we want to know is what triggers in your individual case this feeling unwell, your particular mental health disorder. If we know that and we can then maybe find clusters in these individual trajectories, at that point we might also be able to relate that to certain therapies. So once we know that the people that really have a problem with their sleep before they have worse symptoms for their mental health, they benefit from a certain sort of medication, for example, then we probably can also refer other people that show the same symptom trajectory to that treatment first and hope that it also helps them way better. So it sounds like uh, one of the big things is just getting as much data over long periods of time as possible. Yeah, especially this longitudinal aspect is, is super important because that's the only way that you can look into temporal trajectory. So when you're researching something like human psychology, that also sounds like it would have some challenges when it comes to reproducibility. So can you talk a bit about that specifically with this human psychology research? I mean, if we go into like these quality criteria in general, I think the reproducibility aspect is still quite easy to do. Um, so you basically have different criteria, right, for, for the quality of the method that you employ. One of them is reproducibility, which basically means if I um, give you all my scripts, all my environments, can you basically reproduce what I have found with that? So it takes some effort because you have to release um, your scripts, for example, which we, for example, do in our lab, which I really like. So we always mm -hmm. release our scripts. We also release our data sets, for example, in an anonymized form. So you won't find any identifying information in there, like an email address or your birthday, something like that. But with the information in there, it is still possible to reproduce what we found. What's more of an issue when you work with people sometimes can be the reliability of the results that you found, and it can be due to a lot of different factors. So reliability means if you can repeat a certain measurement several times, will you always find the same thing? There's a lot of different factors that contribute to that. For example, sample size can be a big factor. Um, when you have small samples, it's a bit counterintuitive sometimes. When you have very small samples, you sometimes, just by chance, end up with big effect sizes. 
for certain things. So you think, oh, this is a very big influential factor. But once you have a very big sample, someone else tries it, they come to a completely different conclusion. Suddenly this, this effect size is very small. Because now it's way harder to get just by chance this super big effect size if it is not actually there in the data. And that's something that affects especially neuroimaging research, for example, because it costs a lot. So you always have to think about, can I actually measure a thousand people? It takes a lot of time, but it also just costs a lot of money that not every research institute has. It also, of course, always comes down to the tasks and the questionnaires that you use. Are your tasks really reliable? Meaning, when I give someone a certain task, do I get the same result every time? Yeah, well, we here at the podcast are also big fans of open science and sharing data, so. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I think it is really important. Yeah. So what other than funding maybe is preventing more wide scale repeat studies? For example, you guys are doing this longitudinal study and for good science, someone else has to do ideally the same thing and find similar results. What is preventing that? I mean, it gets better, I would say, now, but it's still quite a big issue that replication in itself has never been seen as something very valuable. Like as a researcher, you will be evaluated on certain indices. Um, one of that is made up by your citations. So whenever you publish a paper that includes all of the results that you got in a certain study, other researchers will go on and cite that paper. So the more papers you publish, the more chance for citations you have. And now when you try to publish a replication study, um, what you will often hear is, oh, but this is not novel. Novelty is something that is very important because we are all like, oh my God, those are results that nobody expected to see. Mm. And that is just very interesting. New is exciting. New is just very exciting. We know that already from babies, right? Like whenever you show a baby something completely <laughs> new, it is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> What we don't think about is that in science often, I mean, new stuff is definitely exciting, but there's often also a big risk attached that something that is very surprising also does not replicate. Um, and what we rely on as science is basically replication in the end we want to know if something is an effect that is stable that is there regardless of if group a or group b looks into this um, and unfortunately that doesn't have that much value although i would say it gets a lot better now like i've seen more replication studies over the years and it's also a bit more encouraged because we've seen the so-called replication crisis in a lot of different subjects where a lot of the like super famous effects haven't replicated so this is one of the questions that we like to ask everyone what do you think 
uh, some of the biggest misconceptions are about the work that you do that people have? I think that's a really interesting question because I can imagine that there are certain fields where there are a lot of misconceptions. I actually never really had the feeling that I was confronted with a lot of misconceptions. In the end, I mean, that was more at, at the beginning or if you like talk to friends and you tell them like, oh, by the way, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> you get like the typical questions, right? Uh, like, oh, you read my mind. Can you read my thoughts right now? <laughs> that gets old pretty fast. Um, but I mean, that's, that's not really a usual thing that I'm confronted with um, in my work. Like we do a lot of outreach, for example. Um, so we also have gone to festivals before and have um, like we were at Electric Island, for example. <laughs> um, and oh, we're just cool. manning a tent there and talking to like just festival goers about brain health and people are really interested in that like a lot of people for example have relatives suffering from dementia or lots of people know people are themselves affected by mental health disorders so there's there's a lot of interest in that in a topic and lots of people want to know more so if anything i think i've been mostly confronted with a lot of interest um, in the topic and the methods yeah I mean I can understand the fascination I guess we all have brains and so it's <laughs> fun to figure out how they yeah, work absolutely and it's just such a it's an organ that we know so less about like it's really mm -hmm. we couldn't build one ourselves it's we have no idea how exactly it works how it makes all of these interesting functions happen that we experience daily so yeah it's just big fascination for me uh so where if people want to find you on social media where can they find you so you can mostly find me still on twitter <laughs> i know it's declining a little bit but uh, it's mostly my home because it has a very nice science community and uh, my username is glassy brain there reflecting the open science aspect having transparency in, in research. So please feel free to drop me a message, um, send me something. You can also, um, of course, find me on the um, website of the Gillen Lab. Um, so if you, for example, want to send an email, ask me something, very happy about that. And if I may, if anybody's interested in helping us out with that research, we are always looking for interested um, participants. So you can do a lot of stuff from your home, for example. We have a research app called Neureka um, that you can freely download from um, both the iOS and the Android app store. Um, but we also do like in-person studies using EEG and brain stimulation here. So if you're interested, um, just drop me a message and I'm, I'm happy to forward you. Wow, I sure hope you get some participants from our listeners. For more fascinating insights. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with us, Vanessa. This has been great. Thank you for having me. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like to find out more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Twitter and Instagram and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Vanessa can be found on Twitter at Glassy Brain. That's at G-L-A-S-S-Y Brain. This podcast series is produced by Olus Productions, bringing you more on science, society, and all things in between through multimedia. This episode was made with Kate Finucane on sound and the editing assistance of Kate Finucane and Brian Kennedy. Research assistance was also from Kate Finucane and Brian Kennedy. Thanks to the co-directors of Point of Science Ireland for 2022, Ashley Gorman and Kevin Mercurio, as well as SFI. And thanks again to Vanessa for joining us on this episode. Point of Science Ireland is a part of the global initiative Point of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Molly McCrory.